handout. If you didn't receive that, uh, let me know. Uh, but I'm trying to make it easy on you so you have some resources. Once uh, our meeting is over, it doesn't mean that uh, the learning stops. And so with that in mind, hopefully that will help you. Uh, so let's take a moment and uh, let's, uh, let's get our minds situated for today with a quick review. Last night, uh, we sort of laid the groundwork uh, that God has called us to be ready always to give an answer of the reason of the hope that's within us. So we're to be ready. That's a command given to us. And then we learn from the book of Titus that one of the responsibilities we have is to be able to convince the gainsayer, uh, not just to say, well, to speak in our echo chamber the things with what we already agree with to the people that already agree with us so that we can get all the amens, but to actually go outside of our echo chamber to the gainsayer and present the evidence and say this is what truth looks like. And so then we said that according to the theme of the conference, with that background, we are to contend for the faith. So last night, we learned that there is evidence for the existence of God. That evidence for God isn't dependent upon just reading the Bible. You don't have to have a Bible to know that God exists. Adam knew that God existed without a Bible. Abraham knew that God existed without a Bible, Moses, etc. And so there's evidence. And then we also established last night that faith isn't just wishful thinking. It isn't just sort of a, I hope this is really, really true, like a good fairy tale, but that faith is based on substance and faith is based on evidence. So this afternoon, we shift gears. We've established that there's evidence for the existence of God, but if you you listen carefully last night, I said the one argument we used wasn't even developed by Christians. Remember that? We talked about the Kalam argument, and who, who originated that? Who developed that argument? What group of people? The Muslims. So to to get somebody to the point of saying, okay, okay, I believe God exists. Hey, that's great. That's a head start. But they're nowhere necessarily close to being called a Christian. Give an example. Anthony Flew uh, is a respected or was a respected uh, scientist in the atheistic world uh, who uh, for many, many years just, he actually debated C.S. Lewis uh, in Oxford while C.S. Lewis was alive, uh, sort of antagonistic to the faith. And in the last uh, 10 years or so, Anthony Flew, the argument of design, went from atheism to theism. He, he shifted his view and said, I cannot ignore the evidence. There is a designer somewhere, but he doesn't know who he is. That make sense? I mean, he knows there's a design and there's a designer, but he doesn't know his next step. And what we want to talk about today is the next step, and that's the reliability of the scriptures. So let's think about this for a moment. Do you believe Jesus loves you? Yeah, me too. How do you know that? Remember the little song we learned as kids? Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? Yeah, you've heard that too, huh? Okay, good. It's amazing what we, what we teach our kids from a very early age. And that song, it just sticks with us, doesn't it? From a very early age, we're teaching our kids to trust the Bible. Let me ask you another question. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? Yeah, me too. Why? Right? Uh, Do you believe that all men are sinners? Or do you believe that man is innately good? (laughs) If you've worked in nurseries, you know that men are not innately good, right? Uh, (laughs) Children have a sin nature from an early age, right? Why do we believe that? Well, the Bible tells us that. Uh, Do we believe that God has a plan of redemption? Sure, the Bible tells us. Uh, And on and on and on it goes, right? Here's what I'm getting at. I'm spending my life, this life, in preparation for the next life. 
But I'm doing that based upon the presupposition that this is the Word of God. If this is not the Word of God, I need to reverse that. And I need to put all my focus on this life and not even care about the next one. Right? But if this is true, then whatever we call a long life right now, whether that's 70 years, 80 years, or uh, 100 years, that's a small drop in the bucket to eternity. So, what we need to establish then is, can the Bible be trusted? Now, some people have the idea that the Bible floats down from heaven into our Christian bookstore, already leather-bound with your name engraved on it, right? So I think if we'll, if we'll stop and think about this, we can understand that the Bible uh, being bound into one book is not the way it was originally given. This book right here, while we may have it in one copy today and we may have it on our devices or on our phone or whatever, this was compiled over a period of about 1,600 years. And just think about a book that's taking six, like if you've ever written something, maybe you had an assignment in high school or assignment in college, and you stared at a blank piece of paper that seemed like an eternity, I guarantee you, compared to the compilation of the Bible, it wasn't. 1,600 years. 40 different writers. Three different languages. Multiple continents. One message. No contradictions. Sometimes people will say, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. And what they mean by that is, in their minds, this is just one book. It's not. It is, but it isn't. It's also a collection of many books written by many different people that testify and bear witness one to the other. I think we have to remember that as we go through it. So, we could talk a lot about uh, subjective evidence of the power of scriptures, you know, change lives, change nations, and that's great. But I want to give us objective evidence today that we can help people have confidence in the reliability of the scriptures. So, as we begin to understand the evidence, what I'd like to talk about first is manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. You say, okay, that, uh, that's, that sounds... Uh, daunting, that sounds overwhelming. We'll, we'll keep it really, really simple uh, because I want us to have a confidence in the Bible for ourselves, but also I want us to understand it in such a way we can share it with others. So if someone tells us that the scriptures aren't reliable, they're not trustworthy, then I would argue if they're going to make that statement, then they also have to make the same statement about every other ancient secular writing. And if they don't, then it reveals a bias. And I'll show you what I mean by that. Let's talk about the evidence. Uh, do you remember going to high school and uh, your literature class, hearing about Homer? Do you remember him? And he wrote the Iliad and the, remember the other one? The Odyssey. Good. Wow, wow. We're on top of this. Did you ever ask your teacher, how do you know Homer wrote the Iliad? I didn't. The teacher said, Homer wrote the Iliad. And I said, okay, I need to know that for a test. First question, who uh, was the ancient writer who wrote the Iliad? Homer. Boom, I've got an A on this paper. I never questioned it. I never asked for the evidence. So let's, let's, play, let's look at the evidence for just a moment. This is sort of amazing to me. So Homer lived around 900 B.C. So if you're familiar with Bible chronology, this is roughly the time of Solomon. It's the expansion of the United Kingdom of Israel. That's going on uh, there in the Holy Land. And at around the same time, Homer is writing his epic poem, his epic piece of literature that's going to make him world famous uh, in about 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have of Homer's, let me use this word, 
the earliest copy we have of Homer's alleged writing, I'll use that word, okay? The earliest dates to 400 B.C. Let's do math. When did Homer write? 900 B.C. When's the first copy? What's the gap? That's a 500-year gap of faith. Okay, do you follow that? So when historians say dogmatically, Homer wrote the Iliad, I want you to understand they're saying that based on their criteria, but they're also saying it in the light of a 500-year gap of history where there's no manuscript evidence to support it. Does that make sense? Because in a moment, we're going to see how the Bible compares to that. Uh, So today, if you were to to try to find copies of Homer's Iliad, there's about 650 copies worldwide, which is not an insubstantial number. And they have about a 95% accuracy rate. Okay, let's go to another illustration number two. And so since we're calling this the Bible on trial, we'll call it Exhibit 2, all right? Exhibit 2, do you remember uh, the guy who said, Et tu, Brute, do you remember him? Beware the Ides of March, Julius Caesar. We don't know a lot about him from the Bible. We read more about his adopted son, Caesar Augustus, who made a decree that the whole world was to be taxed, and that's Luke 2, right? Well, Julius Caesar wasn't just uh, an emperor. He was also a a writer. He wrote history, and he is credited for writing uh, the book The Gaelic Wars. It's about 60 B.C., 60 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 900 A.D. That's almost a thousand-year gap. Okay? Tracking with me? When Homer writes his Iliad, we, we say dogmatically he wrote it, and dogmatically these are authentic copies of the original, and it's trustworthy, and it tells the story as written. We have a 500-year gap, and it doesn't seem to bother us. We have a 1,000-year gap for Julius's Gaelic Wars. There's only about 10 copies of those in existence total, and yet we say dogmatically this is the work of Julius Caesar. Josephus was a first-century Jewish historian, Uh, He was uh, a Pharisee by the time he was 19 years old. Then he became a general in the the, the Israeli army fighting against Rome. He surrendered his army to Rome, and he was present when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and he writes a chronology of that, a history of it. He gives us an eyewitness account of it. His book, The Jewish War, was written during the first century, but the earliest copy we have is the fifth century. There's nine Complete manuscripts, total. We have a 450-year gap. Okay, so these are just three exhibits from history that historians talk about dogmatically. Yep, Homer wrote this. Yep, Julius Caesar wrote that. And Josephus wrote this. So how does the New Testament compare just with the manuscript evidence? Well, the New Testament is written roughly, we'll say post-resurrection, so 33. So we'll, we'll say they're starting, maybe they started writing around 35. We'll just be generous with the dates. And it closes around 95 A.D., so there's roughly a 60-year window for the New Testament to be written. Okay, so the 60-year window, uh, these 27 books are going to be written. It's all going to be completed before 100 A.D. The earliest copy dates 125 A.D. We've got about a 30, 40-year gap at most between when it was written and our earliest copy of it, meaning... In the generation that this was written, people that were still alive when it was written were actually alive to, to bear witness to the authenticity of this copy. That's, that's how close it is. That make sense? 
like right, right, almost simultaneously compared to these other documents. Today we have nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts. Why Greek manuscripts? Well, primarily because of the providence of God, practically uh, through the conquest of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the known world. He spread his Greek culture everywhere he went, so that in the first century, no matter where you went in the known world, you had your home language, your heart language, but you could also communicate in Greek. So our New Testament, written by Jewish writers about a Jewish Messiah, was written in Greek for a wider audience, so that the world could read about the good news or the gospel. It wasn't just a Jewish message. It was a message for the world, so it was written in Greek. So we have about 6,000 manuscripts in Greek, which is about a 99.5, accuracy. Uh, they would call that virtually identical. And then we have other cross-checks. There's ancient versions. So in the Great Commission, we are told to go into all the world, and we're told to teach them to observe all things that, after we baptize them, we teach them to observe all things that we've been commanded. Implicit in the Great Commission, then, if we're going to take the gospel everywhere, is to also bring the Bible to them in their heart language. And so, from the time of the completion of the New Testament, 100 A.D., until 500 A.D., before we go into the Dark Ages, Bible-believing churches translated the Word of God into over 500 languages. Sort of an amazing thought. I mean, they did not have all of the equipment that we have today. They weren't copying and pasting on their iPads or whatever. You know, it's just so, but 500 languages received the Word of God. And today we have over 19,000 copies of those scriptures in other languages. So 6,000 or so in Greek. 19,000, that includes Latin and Italic and uh, Georgian and, and, and all these other ancient languages from that European and, and uh, that area. Uh, we have over 19,000 manuscript evidences there. Another cross-check. We also have the historical remains of many of the writings of early church fathers. I forget uh, what three guys were having this conversation but they wanted to know if all we had, if we, if we lost the Bible, and all we, if we lost the New Testament, and all we had was the writings of the church fathers, could we reconstruct uh, the New Testament? And here's what one of them said. If all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, the patristic quotations would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. I think it's all but six verses. Uh, that are written in these guys' writings. So, what's the significance of this manuscript evidence? So if the resurrection takes place between 30-33 A.D. and Revelation, the end of the New Testament, is written around 95 A.D., you have roughly 65 years of writing. A good portion of the people who were alive during the resurrection, Many of them are still alive during a time of at least most of the New Testament writing. A few are still alive during a time of John's writings. You have a lot of eyewitness accounts. So if you're trying to uh, prove uh, or create something brand new, you have a lot of eyewitness accounts that could put you on the spot. And yet, uh, that was never an issue with the writing or the spreading of the New Testament. Uh, so critics are faced with a dilemma then. If Caesar's Gaelic War is accurate and Homer's Iliad is accurate and Josephus's Jewish Wars is accurate 
and we claim its historical value and its credibility and its reliability. And if we say that of one side of our mouth and out of the other side of our mouth, we say, well, the New Testament, okay, yeah, the, the, the evidence is closer to the source. Okay, I'll give you that. Uh, yeah, there's more uh, copies. I'll give you that. But we can't trust it. Does that reveal a bias? I would say that it does. So just from the standpoint of manuscript evidence, uh, the Bible is shown to be reliable. 2,000 years later from the time of the writing of the New Testament, we have uh, intact today for us the same New Testament that was years ago, uh, accurately translated into our language. Uh, So the Bible on trial, and we're calling witnesses. Uh, we're trying to create for you the jury to make a decision. Can we trust the Bible? And so we, we call up the expert on the manuscripts, and what the manuscript expert says to us is the Bible has far more evidence in its favor than many of these historical ancient documents, and the Bible has evidence that's closer, in fact, to the writing of it. And so from a manuscript, purely manuscript evidence perspective, uh, we can trust that what we have today is reliably accurately, credibly the same as was given in the first century. That's an amazing thought. Let's look at a second line of evidence. Let's look at archaeological evidence. Uh, Does the spade destroy the Bible's credibility or does it help the Bible's credibility? And again, for Bible believers, this evidence isn't for us. We believe it because thus saith the word of God, thus saith the Lord. Or for a skeptic who's maybe trained to, to not trust authority or not trust uh, religion or whatever his background is, to be able to show, well, look at the manuscript evidence for, just ask a question, hey, who wrote the, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey? Oh, Homer did. How do you know that? Who wrote the Gaelic War? Caesar did. Well, how do you know that? Uh, who wrote uh, Jewish Wars in the first century? Josephus. How do you know that? How can you make these 500-year gap jumps or these 1,000-year jumps or these 450 year jumps and yet when the bible has copies that are within 30 years of its publication and so many more documents in its favor how can we dismiss it then looking at archaeological perspective the bible mentions in the book of daniel a guy named belshazzar do you remember him belshazzar is in daniel 6 he's having the big party he's called the king and he's having this big party and then the handwriting comes out on the wall uh so it's a it's in Hebrew, so it's not going this way. So it's obviously got to be a left-handed person like myself, and it's coming this way, right? We're going to say God is left-handed. Okay, so he's writing this Jewish word, mini, mini, tiko, you farson, right? So we read that as kids. I'm like, I don't have any idea what that means. And so they are trying to figure this out, and so Belshazzar's mom says there's a man in the kingdom named Daniel, etc. Here's the problem. From our perspective, we, from a Bible-believing so, yeah, Belshazzar's there, but from a historical perspective, up until the 1800s, there was no evidence for Belshazzar. In fact, every historical evidence and archaeological evidence pointed to a guy named Nabonidus as the king. And in clean succession, right after Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, and there was no room for any other gaps. And so it is amazing. We can show so much support for the Bible, but people who don't want to believe, they would just hold on to, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's good, that's good, but what about Belshazzar? It's like, you know, if you, can't answer, if you can answer 99 questions but not 100, I'm not going to believe. So you can't always help people like that. I get that. 
But God in his grace and God in his providence allowed a guy named Sir Henry Rawlinson to be digging archaeological digs around Babylon. And one time when he put his shovel in the ground, he found a little inscription of pottery. And it was from Nabonidus to my eldest son, Belshazzar. It's in the British Museum. Well, okay, so now he exists. But So now the, now the skeptic is, okay, sure, he had a boy named Belshazzar, but he's not the king. But Henry kept digging. And then later, uncovering some of the, the palace treasures, here's what he found out. The people weren't loyal to Nabonidus because they believed that he had usurped the claim to Nebuchadnezzar's throne by marrying Nebuchadnezzar's widow, and, and they didn't accept him. And so there was a mutiny brewing. So he went to the other palace, one of the other palaces, I think in Sumeria. And so he's there, but he left his son, Belshazzar, to be the co-regent in the kingdom from ruling from Babylon. So that's why he's called a king. They're co-reigning. This also explains, if you remember, if Daniel was able to answer the question, the king, Belshazzar, promised him to be exalted to the third highest in the kingdom. Not second, because first is Nabonidus, and then Belshazzar, and Belshazzar saying, hey, look, we're co-reigning, but if you can answer this question, I'll elevate you to the third in the kingdom. What, what was happening? Archaeology was fitting perfectly in with the biblical record. It wasn't contradicting it. It was complimenting it. William Ramsey was a skeptic at best. He would have probably called himself an atheist early on, then maybe an agnostic, but definitely a skeptic. He was an archaeology-trained man. That was his field. And he, he was not appreciative of so many people talking about the authority of scriptures, and this is the word of God. And, and he, he made it his mission to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the Bible couldn't be trusted. And so from a historical perspective, he read the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts because Luke opens himself up for investigation. Like, for example, okay, we've all read Luke, right? So when you read Mark's Gospel, it just moves, doesn't it? 16 chapters. By chapter 8, you're already in the last week of Jesus' life. The first eight chapters cover that Galilean ministry for three and a half years, and then boom, chapter 8, we're already at Passion Week, and the last eight chapters is going to deal with that one week. And so Mark uses words like immediately, and anon, and straightway. He's just moving. You feel like, whoa, hang on to your seat. Mark is taking us on a journey. Then you get to Luke's gospel. And you look at the first chapter, and it has like 81 verses, and you say, oh, Luke, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> and Luke, he's just, he just has a lot of detail, doesn't he? Well, Luke is going to name over 100 people by name, 100 places by name. He's going to give uh, over 100 dialogues uh, verbatim. He's also going to call Roman officials by names that weren't always the same. They were only called that for particular seasons, and then they would migrate and evolve to other names. And so he's just basically saying, check me out. And William Ramsey said, I'm going to check you out. But every time he put his shovel in the ground, it verified Luke's writings to the point that Ramsey in his own writing says, the gospel writer Luke was a historian of the first-rate quality. What happened to William Ramsey? Sir William Ramsey became a believer, the one who had once spent his life trying to destroy the credibility of the Scriptures, placed his faith in Jesus Christ. Then he became an apologist. <laughs> and the man who had once given his life to destroy the credibility of the Christian faith spent the rest of his life defending the credibility. Why? Well, for him, archaeology was the reason. Uh, and so if ever there was a place for an error to be found, Luke would have given it. 
Ramsey could find no error. Archaeology uh, confirmed uh, the Bible's accuracy. Now let's compare this just for a moment. There's a book that a religious group of people hold to that talks about a lost tribe of Israel coming to America. And the Native American people that were here were actually Jewish people, and they built these large treasure cities. You can read about it in some of the works published by uh, the Mormon Church. Well, the Smithsonian, in doing their archaeological digs in some of these places, wanted to find these treasure cities. And so they took the holy writings as a guide and put their shovel in the ground. And everywhere they put the shovel in the ground, nothing Nothing. Archaeology had the opposite effect for the Mormon church. It tore down the credibility. So now faith had to be blind faith. And now faith had to be wishful thinking, not biblical faith. Archaeology for the Christian isn't an enemy. It's a companion. And so we call witness number one, expert for the manuscripts. What do you say? Well, here's the evidence. Why would anybody doubt the veracity of the scriptures? We call argument evidence, and our second witness, we, we ask from an archaeological perspective, he said, every time we put the shovel in, the Bible is deemed credible. Let's look at historical evidence. Does history destroy the Bible's credibility? And I love how some people have defined history. It's more, nothing less than his story, right? And so when we look at history, uh, there's a first century historian named Tacitus. And Tacitus... Uh, is not a believer. And in the first century, Christianity is not this worldwide phenomenon. So he's not trying to mitigate the, this explosive growth, though it is growing. He's just a passionate, secular historian. And here's what he writes. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures of a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like you could have read that in the Bible, right? That wasn't from the Bible. That was just a Roman historian saying, you know, remember when the fires started in Rome and some people said it was Nero who did it and Nero wanted to find somebody to blame? He fastened the guilt upon these people called Christians. Who were they? Would they follow this guy named Christ or Christus? What happened to him? Well, he was put to death by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Does that confirm the Bible's evidence, or does that conflict with it? It confirms it. Uh, Suetonius was a secretary to an emperor in the second century named Hadrian. Hadrian built the Roman pantheon uh, there in Rome. He also built some of the holy sites uh, in in Israel, sort of a uh, in deference to try to create some loyalty. Not a believer at all, but his secretary was writing uh, in the early uh, 120s, 130s. Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Christus, he, and he in context is Claudius, he expelled them from the city. I vaguely remember Luke saying something about that in the book of Acts. He talks about just in passing in chapter 18 how Aquila and Priscilla were no longer in Rome because Claudius had expelled the Jewish people from Rome. This is what Suetonius was writing about. Yeah, back during that time, this is what happened during the reign of Claudius. Here's what else Suetonius said. 
After the great fire at Rome, punishments were also inflicted on Christians, a sect professing a new and mischievous religious belief. Obviously, he's not compatible with them. He's not favorable to them. Uh, We would call these hostile witnesses, but they are witnesses from history that prove there was a group of Christians who followed a man named Christ who was put to death by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Josephus, who I'd mentioned earlier in his book Antiquities, talks about James, who was the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. That's what he said. And then there's another quote from his book. At this time, there was a wise man named Jesus. His conduct was good. He was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who became his disciples did not abandon that discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. That's the Jewish historian, who was not a believer. He's not a Christian. What he's saying is, now I talked to you about James, who's this leader of these Christians at Jerusalem, but, but his brother, on the other hand, he was a good man. He was virtuous. He, he did miraculous wonders. He was put to death by Pilate. Some of those people who were his disciples just continued to be his disciples, and they even allegedly said that he appeared to them after that death, Uh, And he just goes on and just sort of lays out the historical narrative. He doesn't give a judgment on it. He just says, this is what they taught. Pliny, the younger, who was in Bithynia, a governor there, he said, in writing to the Caesar, he said, I've got this group of people. They're in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before light. They sing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as if he were a god. I love that. There's a reason that's why they sing a hymn to him. And they bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, never to commit a fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, not to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. Uh, And so I want to know, do I, do I, so the context is, so do I go and hunt these people down and arrest them? Or if I find them and they confess to be Christians, then I arrest them. Is, Is it a passive search or an aggressive search for these people who promise not to steal and not to commit fraud, not to commit adultery and not to lie and not to deny a trust? Uh, These enemies of the state. These Christians. So what he's saying here in his argument is this Roman official inadvertently is giving credence to the fact that there's a group of believers called Christians who follow Christ. They worship him as though he were a god. Nelson Gluick states, it can be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever been or ever will controvert a single biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made that confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Now, I I know some historians have objections to the Bible, and they'll they'll say things like, okay, let's just start, let's just talk about the elephant in the room. You Christians believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but we know as historians that writing was not even invented during the time of Moses. Moses. And yet, while they say that, on the other side of the mouth, they talk about Hammurabi's Code, 1700 B.C., the Lipit Ishtar Code in 1860 B.C., the laws of Eshnuna in 1915 B.C. So on the one side of the mouth, oh yeah, the Babylonians and the Sumerians and the Eshnuites and all these different people, they, oh, they're writing. But Moses, who was trained in the house of Pharaoh, no, no, he, he didn't write. You see a bias? 
That's the Abias. Another objection was the Hittite empire didn't even exist, so the Bible is just nothing but perpetuating, perpetrating myths. But in 1906, an archaeological dig confirmed that there was a vast and prominent civilization that matched the Bible's description of these people called the Hittite. Uh, some people say that uh, Jesus was just a myth, and yet within 110 years of crucifixion, there's approximately 18 non-Christian sources, hostile witnesses, that mention more than 100 facts, beliefs, and teachings from the life of Jesus that includes his miracles, his resurrection, even his claim to be God. So, we're calling to the witness stand. Hey, Mr. Manuscript Expert, give me the evidence. Mr. Archaeologist, Mr. Archaeologist, give me the evidence. Mr. Historian, give me the evidence. Let's call our fourth witness. Let's call the scientist. Scientific evidence. Is science a deterrent to faith or is it a help to faith? David Piles wrote, When studying the science of the ancient world, one is more apt to be impressed with its ignorance and to admire its accuracy. Just let that sink in for just a minute. Because you read about, you know, you hear about the things of what science used to look like. Then he says this, However, The Bible offers a definite exception to this rule. The scriptures are replete with statements suggesting scientific knowledge that predates the corresponding discoveries of secular science. Given that Bible writers weren't scientists, and given that the scientific information at their disposal was generally misleading, the accuracy of the Bible in regards to science can only be attributed to the inspiration of God. I love that statement. Here's a few examples. We often hear about how the ancient world taught that the, the earth was flat. And yet the Bible talks about how, in the book of Isaiah, the, the earth is round. Uh, the ancient, uh, ancient people, some, some of the theories were uh, the earth rested on the back of a turtle, <laughs> which rested on the back of another turtle, and it was just turtles all the way down. Okay? And yet you read in Job 26, verse 7, the earth is hanging on nothing. Job is possibly the oldest book in the, in the entire Bible. So he's obviously ahead of his time with that statement by a few millennium. In the early days when people were studying the stars and astronomy, they talked about numbering the stars. Now they have caught up with the Bible and understand, as Genesis 15 says, the stars are innumerable. Psalm 8.1 talks about the water paths of the sea. I know we don't often get excited in our daily Bible reading when we come to the book of Leviticus. It's about the time we're about ready to say, Lord, come quickly. <laughs> Yet we're going to be disciplined. We're going to get to, I think Leviticus has been the death graveyard for many a good intention of reading the Bible through in a year. And yet, if we were to look at it from this standpoint, do you remember how the book of Leviticus talked about them having a weapon, and on the weapon was to be a paddle, and they were to dig holes and put their human waste in it? Because I, the Lord, your God, am a holy God, and I'm going to sanctify you that when I walk through the land, it'll be clean. And so there was this principle of bearing the human waste. Do you know if science would have just followed that principle, we never would read about the bubonic plague? Do you know also in the book of Leviticus, they're instructed not to touch dead bodies or handle dead bodies? There's a story about a guy named Ignis Simmelweis a doctor. He meets a distraught, near-term pregnant woman who's weeping uncontrollably. 
So he goes to her to find out why. Comes to find out, this woman had been assigned to the medical students, not the midwives. The death rate for mothers delivered by medical students was one in six. So when she heard that she had been assigned there, she took it as a death sentence. So Semmelweis sought for a connection. He eventually realized that the medical students would often handle cadavers. And leaving that room, they would come into the room with the pregnant mother and do their internal exams straight from that room to this room. So he instituted this revolutionary idea. Wash your hands. (laughs) Within one month, the death rate went to 1 in 84. The medical field rejected his studies. Traditions die hard. Eventually, they committed him to an asylum. He was beaten by guards, and he died 14 days later. Maybe Moses was onto something when he mentioned we shouldn't touch any dead body. All right. Manuscript evidence guy, the evidence is strong. Archaeologist, yeah, it's good evidence. Historian, good evidence. Science, good evidence. Let's look at another line of evidence, prophetic evidence. Does the Bible pass the test of prophecy? How about this? Israel is still a nation. Just think about that for just a moment. Around 140 AD, there was this revolt in uh, in the land, and Rome had enough. So they just dispelled the Jews from the land, and in a final act of contempt, they renamed the land after one of Israel's oldest enemies, the Philistines, and they named the land Palestine. And so from that time until 1948, the Jews had no homeland. And yet, they refused to be assimilated into the other nations. They retained their Jewishness. They retained their love for scriptures. They retained their culture. They built their synagogues. And in 1948, God said, I haven't forgotten you. You're the apple of my eye. And he made a way for them to back into the land. That's big prophetically. How about the fact that Messiah was born in Bethlehem? How do you fulfill that? How do you manipulate the place of your birth? Like, uh, he was just a conniver, and he just sort of, how do you manipulate? You're living in Nazareth. Your mom's pregnant in Nazareth. How do you manipulate to be born in Bethlehem? It's a little bit out of your control in the womb. And yet, 750 years prior to that fact, Micah had prophesied he would be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah prophesied he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He also prophesied that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, it's prophesied by Isaiah he'd be born of a virgin. It's prophesied in the Psalms that he would have no bones broken. Uh, Cyrus is named 150 years before his birth. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand. So let, let, me, let me make this so a visual. In the field of statistics, it shows that coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. So... If we just take eight prophecies, and Jesus fulfilled more than eight, but if we just take eight prophecies, we find the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled eight prophecies to be one in ten to the 17th power. I can't comprehend that number, but this illustration helps me. Let's go to Texas because everything's bigger in Texas. We're going to go to Texas. We're going to go to all the borders, and we're going to cover the entire state with silver dollars, Two feet deep. Entire state. So I need some help coming up with the silver dollars. That's going to be a lot of money, right? 
I'm going to put the, the entire state, two feet deep, silver dollars. We're going to mark one of them. We're going to mark it red and randomly put it in the state somewhere. Then we're going to magically mix all of these silver dollars around. We're going to blindfold a guy and turn him loose and say, walk wherever you want in the state of Texas through these two feet deep worth of uh, silver dollars and find the marked one. The chances of him finding that one marked coin is the same chances, the same odds of one person living throughout all of history having eight prophecies fulfilled about him in his life. So from our prophecy expert, would you agree with this statement? Uh, The Bible is trustworthy from the evidence presented by prophecy. I have one final witness. So we've heard from manuscripts, we've heard from archaeology, we've heard from history, we've heard from science, we've heard from prophecy. But because we put the Bible on trial, we want to give it a chance to speak for itself. If you're on trial, you have the opportunity to testify in your own defense. And so we now would like to hear from the Bible. And here's the question we have for the Bible while it's on the witness stand. Do you claim to be the word of God? Thus saith the Lord. 450 times the Bible uses that expression. 46 times the Bible uses an expression, and God said, or its equivalent. If we take all of the equivalent expressions where the Bible is claiming to be from God, it's over 2,000 times. So all of the external evidence points to this being trustworthy, and then it claims itself to be the Word of God. And we know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given how? By inspiration of God. Literally, it claims to be God-breathed. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, holy men spake not uh, in times past by their own accord. It wasn't just something they, they just sort of said, you know what, I think I just want to write a letter. But no, these holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. So here's what God did. The Holy Spirit took holy men and moved them to the destination of his words so that the end result was the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Spirit taking holy men produced holy scriptures. The evidence is considered and looked at without biases. A reasonable verdict, then, is the Bible is trustworthy. And since it's accurate where it's able to be tested, then there's no reason to doubt it in the areas where we cannot. So hopefully that gives you some thought today on the credibility of the amazing book that sometimes we take for granted called the Bible. Lord, thank you for challenging our thoughts today and Lord, just building some credibility in our own hearts and minds about the trustworthiness, the accuracy, the reliability of the scriptures. And Lord, help us to take these truths, to meditate upon them, and then share them with others who may be 